0: Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Have you ever had a patient who experienced an emotional release following an adjustment? If you have, I would bet that the majority of the time, if not all the time, this has happened following an upper cervical adjustment. On many occasions, I've made an adjustment to then have the patient tell me, I don't even know why I'm crying. Last week, I adjusted a woman who then told me, if you'd asked me any personal question at all, I would have lost it and begun crying uncontrollably. It's a powerful thing to witness, so it's no surprise there are chiropractors who limit themselves to the upper cervicals. As I like to say, you can adjust an atlas and tell them the power that made the body heals the body, but that won't fix a T2 subluxation. The real question is why do they experience this powerful release, particularly in the upper cervicals, and what can we learn from knowing more about it? So let's take a look at the physiology of an emotional release. Let me begin by confessing that today's topic is way over my head. This is some brain neurology and physiology that's in an area we rarely study or learn about in school. It's generally the domain of the psychologist for its clinical application and the the neurologist for its academic application. Nonetheless, I'll attempt to give you the basics as an introduction to the topic, but also some clinical application to produce some relevance. So that being said, let's begin with a structure known as the periaqueductal gray, or the PAG for short, and as I'll refer to it for the rest of this episode. According to a 2021 study of the PAG by Priscilla Vasquez-Leon et al., the periaqueductal gray is a complex mesencephalic structure involved in the integration and execution of active and passive self-protective behaviors against imminent threats, such as immobility or flight from a predator. PAG activity is also associated with the integration of responses against physical discomfort, for example, anxiety, fear, pain, and disgust, which occurs prior to an imminent attack, but also during withdrawal from drugs such as morphine and cocaine. The PAG sends and receives projections to and from other well-documented nuclei linked to the phenomenon of drug addiction, including the ventral tegmental area, extended amygdala, medial prefrontal cortex, pontine nucleus, bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, and the hypothalamus. Preclinical models have suggested that the PAG contributes to the modulation of anxiety, fear, and nociception, all of which may produce physical discomfort. Linked with chronic exposure to drugs of abuse, withdrawal produced by the major pharmacological classes of drugs of abuse is mediated through actions that include participation of the PAG. In support of this, there's evidence of functional, pharmacological, molecular, and or genetic alterations in the PAG during the impulsive, compulsive, intake, or withdrawal from a drug. Due to its small size, it's difficult to assess the anatomical participation of the PAG when using classical neuroimaging techniques, so its physiopathology in drug addiction has been underestimated and poorly documented. Okay, so I've already unloaded a ton of info on you, so let's take a few pieces of that to make sure we're working with a better paradigm. First off, the idea of fight or flight being a purely sympathetic neurological response, devoid of any brain activity, is not correct. As you can see, this portion of the brain is involved in fight or flight response. It's a primary brain response, so it does happen below the level of cognition, but it's still a coordinated function of the brain. And yes, it is coordinated function and not a haphazard response, like we might be tempted to think about the fight or flight response. The other powerful thing about that opening statement is the connection of an area of the brain that deals with discomfort avoidance and drug dependence. This would explain why it's just as difficult for a drug addict to leave their addiction as it is for a fear or anxiety addict to leave their fear or anxiety addiction. I'm sure at some point in your education, you've seen a homunculus, although you may not be aware of what it is. An homunculus is an image of a person or an organ with the size of the body parts affected, distorted to represent how much area of the cerebral cortex of the brain is devoted to it. In this case, we have a homunculus of the brain, but instead of body parts, we show distortions based on the emotions involved and where in the brain they come from. The PAG is located low in the occipital portion of the skull, posterior to the foramen magnum. Obviously, an occiput adjustment would affect this area, but so too would the atlas and axis vertebra. A 2011 study by Wright and Panksepp created an exploratory model for investigating clinical depression on the basis of the dorsal PAG functioning like a circuit. Their study was to use electrical stimulation of the dorsal PAG resulting in a reduction in traditional measures of negative social affect, including behavioral agitation, sucrose intake, and decreased exploratory behavior. If you're unfamiliar with the term affect, it has to do with the range of emotions we experience during our normal everyday lives. Negative social affect means that nearly every encounter you have with other humans produces negative emotions. This is a clinical disorder that is largely unaffected by talk therapy which, as we now understand, is because it's largely an electrical problem caused by the circuitry of the PAG. I should state at this point that this is not a problem that will be fixed 100% of the time by chiropractic alone. Uh, We certainly do play a role, but that's why we have a window of opportunity to see some of these emotional releases following subluxation correction. However, from my current understanding, we're most likely to see those results when we're correcting the consequences of a physical trauma. For example, the patient has a car accident you adjust the subluxation, and they have an emotional release, especially if the corrective adjustment is taking place years after the original accident. On the other side of things, this circuitry can be negatively affected chemically by drugs, as we've discussed, both legal and illegal, and it can be affected by viruses. About six months after COVID came on the scene, the literature was already demonstra- demonstrating a dramatic uptick in dysautonomia post-infection. This dysregulation of the vagus nerve proved difficult to correct when the cause was viral. Neurofeedback has proven to be a valuable ally in this course for its ability to help with chemically and virally produced dysfunction in addition to traumatic causes. So let's get back to those emotional releases that we see from time to time. The effective circuits of the PAG include the emotions of play, panic, fear, rage, care, lust, and seeking. The neurotransmitters that feed into the activity of this area of the brain are acetylcholine, serotonin, and norepinephrine. In case it's been a while since you were in school, norepinephrine is a neurotransmitter and a hormone of the sympathetic nervous system. It has all the effects you would associate with sympathetic behavior. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter that plays a vital role in the sleep-wake cycle and in bowel movements as 90% of the body's serotonin can be found in the gut. The other 10% would be found in the brain where it controls mood, cognition, reward, learning, and memory. Serotonin is the primary driver of the gut-brain connection and the link between food and mood. Its effect on the brain is primarily found in its effect on the PAG. Finally, acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter, the most common neurotransmitter, and any receptor that can interact with it is called cholinergic. Its primary role in brain function is for focus, learning, and memorization. It also supports muscle contractions, sleep and arousal, and it's vital for the release of other important chemicals. These neurotransmitters affect the PAG as it's the primary level and first point of contact. Dysfunction in this region triggers a form of separation panic in the area of one of the seven functions I mentioned previously. In case you forgot, they were play, panic, fear, rage, care, lust, and seeking. This will then push to the secondary level, which affects our object relations. The parts of the brain involved are the amygdala, and other basal ganglia. The clinical dysfunction will include the emotions of empathy, shame, trust, blame, pride, and guilt. The hard thing to realize here is that when people have obvious dysfunctions in these emotions, it isn't because they're bad people, and it's not really even their fault or their choice. They have an electrical circuitry dysfunction, and this is how it presents. They aren't bad people, they're sick people. I realize that they're also probably annoying people, which is still a problem, even if it isn't their choice or their fault. It's at this stage that the person will lose affect regulation, which is the ability to regulate and control the emotions they feel as they interact with other human beings during the course of their life. From here, we push on to the tertiary, which is also the final level of dysfunction. This is the level where you begin to become cognitively aware of the problem. It involves the use of the neocortex, and it results in names for your feelings, mentalization, containment, mindfulness, and distancing skills. This level tends to make the dysfunction more manageable, but it rarely seems to do much to correct the problem. That's because we're just now understanding the electrical circuitry nature of the origin of the problem. A nature that we, as chiropractors, have stumbled on from time to time, but have lacked a framework for understanding it, much less finding a way to maximize the effect that we can have on it. In 2019, Fowle and Pattinson did a study on the role of the PAG in relationship to the feeling of breathlessness. This got my attention because even though not everybody experienced COVID as severely as I did, I spent a couple days where I was always struggling for my next breath and the breathlessness was unrelenting. This itself could lead to a dysregulation of the circuitry of the PAG leading to long-term dysfunction and an altered emotional state. Considering all the people who were put on breathing tubes, there are certainly a large large number of people who could be suffering from the long-term effects of this. In 2018, Grawl et al. did a study on the PAG's influence on placebo analgesia. They found that pain expectation is integrated with actual nociceptive input to create an actual pain perception. As such, they found that placebos are most effective on those who have a more accurate and precise expectation of pain. Evidence for the expectation of pain can be found in the PAG, meaning that the PAG will change neurologically to reflect the expectation of pain. This is why patients with emotional dysfunction and PAG circuitry dysfunction will often have unrealistically high expectation of pain and altered pain perception. In other words, they claim the injury and the correction are more painful than what should reasonably be expected, all due to the circuitry dysfunction of the PAG. I'm not saying their pain isn't real. The pain is real, but it's caused by their disoriented perception of the world around them. Okay. So from a chiropractic perspective, how can we use this information to help us be more effective on behalf of our patients? First off, we should assume, whenever we find a subluxation at C2 or above, that the PAG is involved and our patients have emotional incongruence due to circuitry dysfunction of the PAG. Can the adjustment fix this? Many times the answer is yes, but not always yes. As I mentioned before, trauma-based dysregulation is most likely to respond to the adjustment. That's when we will see the emotional release, and that serves as a sign that we've corrected the dysregulation. I think I would be remiss if I did not address the fact that these emotional releases might make some practitioners uncomfortable. In fact, they might make some patients uncomfortable as well. The best way to handle these situations is for you, the practitioner, to remain as emotionless as possible. Whatever you do, don't escalate by exhibiting extreme emotion. Their body is recalibrating And an emotionless environment helps it to set an emotionless baseline. I also reassure the patient that their body is correcting a dysfunction and whatever it needs to do to accomplish that is okay. It's not just what I say, but how I say it. I prefer to use what Chris Voss calls the late night DJ voice. When you talk in a slower, purposeful manner in the lower register of your voice, it has a natural calming effect that every person is hardwired to respond to. Again, My intention is to set a proper emotionless baseline for their nervous system to calibrate to. Now, there's going to be times when the adjustment alone won't correct everything, especially in a post-COVID world, where much of this dysregulation has a viral cause. Some of these are also caused chemically as a result of polypharmacy. In these situations, neural feedback, essentially electrical stimulation, seems to serve to give the necessary bump to help the nervous system achieve proper function. Sometimes you have to jumpstart the heart to get it working again, and sometimes you have to jumpstart the nervous system to get it working as well. I'm not going to talk much about neurofeedback, I'll save that for another day, but I don't want you to be discouraged if you don't see this happening in certain cases where you think it should. My purpose is simply to explain to you what is happening when you do see this and to understand that you are re-regulating the sympathetic nervous system, the brain, and the emotions. It's a powerful thing and an awesome experience to witness, so I see why people get hooked on upper cervical chiropractic. The problem is that it only works if that's where the subluxation is. You can't adjust an unsubluxated upper cervical and think that anything good is gonna come from it. If you'll indulge me for a moment to say something that's probably not politically correct or chiropractically correct, when I see all these videos of chiropractors trying to become famous who are essentially assaulting the upper cervical area with occipital lifts Y-straps, ring dingers, or simply rotational thumb pushes on the atlas, I realize that there has to be a negative consequence on the PAG caused by manipulation with no evaluation and no evidence of subluxation. Can we as a profession finally admit that it's unacceptable to manipulate joints without an evaluation? Because the consequences of manipulating healthy joints, particularly in the upper cervicals, can have devastating and long-lasting consequences for the patients. These people don't deserve to be famous They deserve to be unemployed because if the general public understood the risk these chiropractors are taking with their health, they wouldn't be lining up to see them. The point being, don't start banging on the upper cervicals to try to create a stimulation or elicit a particular result. Instead, find the subluxation, accept it where you find it, adjust it, and leave it alone. When a subluxation is fixed, it's fixed. If you've never fixed a subluxation so you could leave it alone, then you have a technique problem. I know that's not politically correct either, but it is the harsh truth. When I was a student, I remember Dr. Alex telling us so many stories of patients who got better, then they were adjusted one more time, and they were worse off than when they started. It was drilled into my young mind that the biggest chiropractic sin you could commit is to overadjust the patient and leave them worse than you found them. That thinking is now probably considered old school, but we really did prioritize fixing the patient and leaving them alone rather than putting them on a six-month visit plan. If you remember the seven emotions I said are associated with the PAG, fear is one of them. For the first time in my life, I've had patients coming in with a chief complaint of anxiety. At first, I couldn't figure it out, but what we've talked about today is the explanation behind this phenomenon. I think we would be wise to remember that many of our patients are truly dysfunctional, and they're not to blame for their behavior. We should have grace for them and do what we can to help them to integrate and process the world correctly. Well, I hope you found this useful today, and it'll help you to appreciate both the sensitivity of the upper cervical region, but also the power of a powerful adjustment to that area as well. I've had a lot of people ask me lately, so I'll tell you the answer is yes. I'm still looking for someone to join our team and take over the office in, office in Rich Christ, California. If you'd be interested, let me know, and we can talk about how to make that happen. Don't forget to mark your calendar for the Meeting of the Minds, October 15th to 16th. In the meantime, you can find seminars all over the country, If you're outside the U.S. and are in need of technique help, I've begun building the subscription area to include a number of resources to help you out on technique, and I will continue to do so. So feel free to check that out, and you can always email me with any specific questions you might have at the1505club at gmail.com. Also, if you're outside the U.S., please recommend this podcast to others you know so we can continue to build the awareness and skills of doctors outside the U.S. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time. (coughs) No, 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 no,